The Start On Demand. On demand. One hundred and seventy-six people, including sixty-three Canadians, have died in a plane crash in Iran. That crash came on the heels of Iran launching missiles at air bases in Iraq, where Americans and Canadians were stationed. Much to discuss on both. Emergency rooms are overflowing and nursing vacancies are high. But it's not just in Winnipeg. We'll find out what's happening across the country. And Hal Anderson tells us that twenty-five percent of couples would rather live apart. I'm Brett McGarry, alongside Greg Mackling and Loren McNabb. We are Mackling, McGarry and McNabb, and this is the Wednesday, January 8th podcast for The Start. Mackling, McGarry and McNabb. It's going to be a tough one today, I think. Yeah, you know, when I went to bed last night, I was already thinking and looking at all the articles about the missile attacks from Iran to Iraq and thinking about the troops that had gotten out of harm's way and the fact that no one was hurt and relieved about that. And then I woke up this morning and what time was it that I think about 2, 3, 3 a.m. I sent you guys that note about the plane crash in Iran with 63 Canadians dead. And I don't remember the last time we had 63 Canadians or, or that sort of mass casualty to Canadians. It's been decades, I think, since we've seen that kind of number. And what a devastating news for many Canadians to wake up to this morning. Yeah, I don't think that was the story we were anticipating discussing out of Iran this morning, guys. I think we were, uh, I don't know how many of you were glo- glued to your televisions last night around supper time, but uh, I know I was uh, channel surfing and uh, clicking around the different news services to try and get as much information as I could about what was happening as Iran launched uh, multiple, almost two dozen missiles, according to some reports, a dozen according to others. Uh, we don't know the numbers exactly, but what we are confident is that there were no Canadians injured. In fact, uh, it seems as though there were no fatalities whatsoever in this in this uh, act of aggression from Iran. Well, they say it's a response to America's act of aggression. Yeah, no Canadians killed in those strikes, but then you wake up to the airplane crash and you think to yourself, oh my gosh, what happened here? And immediately officials went on air saying, look, this has nothing to do with these airstrikes. This is likely a mechanical failure with the plane crash. All people on board, 176 people killed in that crash, but they're saying that it was simply mechanical, nothing to do with those airstrikes, but it's so hard not to connect the two and have the worries and fears about what may happen over there. So two different Iranian stories to follow this morning that we hope are not related at all. So we're going to have a conversation at 6.45 on are you concerned with what's happening in the Middle East and what? how do you explain it to your kids? But another thing, of course, that you know, I think it was around 4.30 where I got the notification and I just kind of said, well, damn it, snowfall warning in effect for Winnipeg and much of southern Manitoba, 10 to 15 centimeters of snow, as Tristan was saying, and uh, combined with south wind up to 60 kilometers an hour. So that's going to be a nightmare of visibility. Yeah, we were talking yesterday about how the... Holidays were over, not only Christmas break and New Year's, but the nice reprieve we're getting from uh, typically uh, colder winter temperatures. So that is over. And then now we're going to get some snow because there are some places, some front yards that that barely have any snow on them at all because we haven't had a ton of snow so far. But uh, as I've uh, come to realize, this is the truth of life in Manitoba in the wintertime. <laughs> it's January. Cold and snow. I just I mean, said yesterday, really. where is all the snow? We should talk to some people about the lack of snow out there. And I know on the weekend, Global News spoke to some of the ski resorts and the challenge there to make snow through the last month. And now at the least, you know, on the flip side, if you're into that, if you're snowmobiling, if you're skiing, it sounds like snow is coming. So we'll talk to Environment Canada after 6.30 to get the latest and how bad the wind. It's always the wind to me once you get snow like this for how I drive in and the blowing openness of all of Manitoba. <laughs> yeah, well, especially if you live outside the city. Yeah. That's this, it's the wind that, that ca- causes the greatest amount of concern and, and safety issues, for sure. Yeah, because we don't... I mean, I, I rarely leave this city during the winter, uh, so... I usually don't deal with that visibility issue. The only, I think the only time really where it's a problem for me, and I remember being quite scared actually, was on Keniston where you kind of just, where it opens up by the, the flyover or whatever you want to mm. call it. And uh, it went from kind of normal visibility in a snow situation to almost zero visibility. So having to deal with that every day, driving in from out of town, that's got to be tough. So watch out for the deer.
Watch out for the deer. That's as long as there's no deer, I can take the blowing snow. I think. Do they stay in place when there's poor I visibility? I swear to you, they have one path only, and it's in front of my car. <laughs> <laughs> That's how it's been feeling the last year. For radar sure. to Lorenz vehicle. Another big headline at globalnews.ca: Canadian military personnel in Iraq safe after base targeted in Iran missile strikes. So we wanted to have the conversation. Are you concerned with what's happening in the Middle East? And uh, Greg, you might said that one of your kids asked you a very direct question. What was that? Yeah, we were maybe three minutes uh, from school yesterday, and just Brendan said to me, says, Dad, are we having World War Three?" And you have to pause and take a deep breath before you answer that. And I just said, no, Brendan, we're not heading towards World War III. Some things are going on right now that make it feel like it could be end of times and that and that some people are doing some things that aren't very wise. But uh, at the end of the day, I firmly believe that rational heads shall prevail in this. And that's, that's the way I've got to carry myself. And then last night I was worried because I was so involved in, in watching the news of these missile strikes from Iran into Iraq that I was concerned that the, the boys were going to catch on to the fact of what was going on, and they just carried on their way. They did their music lessons. They did their homework. So I was thankful for that, that they didn't they didn't get all wrapped up in it, even though it's, it's part of my job and my personality to be on top of that stuff. So I, I don't know any other way to handle it. I had the same thing. The TV was on when I came home from guitar lessons with the boys, and it was muted. And my husband just pointed and kind of said, shush, you know, take a look yep. at the TV because I wasn't aware of these missile attacks that had been launched. And But the kids can read now, right? And there's the ticker going on. And so my oldest was like, read it and goes, what's a missile attack? Where's it wrong? Like started asking all these questions. So we turned the TV off. But by then it's it's happened. It's in their heads. So I pulled out the globe and showed them where those countries are and where Canada was. And the youngest said, OK, so there's a whole ocean. And, and you're trying to figure out how much to explain so that they're comfortable, but it's uncomfortable, I think, for even adults, Tristan. Well, and, and how do you make such a complex situation easy to explain? Forget about for children, but for yourself and other people out there. Right. Like I was doing some reading up on the Iranian general who was killed, um, and I listened to a, a lot of podcasts. And there's this one from actually New York Times does a daily podcast that I really enjoy. So they were they had one of their correspondents there disp- uh, discussing that the Iranian general killed in this airstrike. Apparently, a few years ago, when ISIS was a real threat in Iraq, this Iranian general and that part of that the army took it upon themselves to join the fight against ISIS. So in a weird roundabout way, even though this Iranian general is known for killing hundreds of American lives through the groups that he funded, terrorist groups like you know Hamas and Hezbollah, or that have been identified as terrorist groups at least, um, in a weird way, this guy was a default ally of the U.S., in the struggle for ISIS. So it just goes to show that, I mean, I have a tough time wrapping my head around that as someone who works in the news industry. How the hell do you explain that to an 8, 9, 10-year-old? You know, you, you can't. You, you can say, yes, there's bad people there, but that's an oversimplification of a process that, you know, that whole region was once described as a quagmire famously by the future, at the time, Vice President Dick Cheney who said it would be a mistake to invade it. Well, he was 100% right. It ended up being a huge quagmire, and now we're in this mess for years and years. So, like, it's just one thing leads to another, and that explanation ends up being, you know, a 20-minute conversation that you don't even know what the answer is at the end of it. Kelly, does it make you think back to different situations we've been in? it does. It's You're reading my mind because I was about your kid's age when the Cuban Missile Crisis was occurring back in the early 60s. And, of course, it was a different world back then. All of our information either came from TV or radio, uh, you know, if you wanted an immediate, uh, newspapers would, uh, you know, also be a, a great source of information. And and so now, of course, there is no shortage of information and not all of it accurate uh, via social media. So the only thing I, I guess I would say is be very, very careful uh, with you know, read whatever you want, but be very, very careful with what you are uh, taking as the gospel, uh, and and try to identify real accredited sources for this information. Well, that's part of the problem because our kids are online. Exactly, a big yeah. part of the day, and they're going to see these headlines. They don't know what the source is. All they do is see the information. Maybe it's a pop up yeah. on a screen or mm-hmm. or some sort of a series of news wires. We don't know where our kids are going all the time. 
Yeah, or because there from their friends. Yeah. There were a lot of agendas out there. So just that's the only thing I would say. And to get back to the original question, Brent, uh, Brett, rather, uh, I, as Canadians, I'm not so sure that we should have to be as concerned as much. If I was living in the United States, I think I'd feel a little bit more uncomfortable. Except for that we have troops over there and we keep forgetting that. We, we like do. To, we like to yeah. pretend like this isn't our conflict. It's oh, not no, our it, war. It, it, and it we're very ours. much involved. Yeah. Yeah. But I see what you're saying. If they're going to retaliate, is it going to come to an American city versus just, Canada? For what little I know of uh, of the mindset, I would say that at least in terms of uh, what you're trying to create for your country, it would probably serve a greater purpose to attack somewhere in the United States than it would in, in, in one of the uh, Americans' allies. And just to hear you say that out loud, it just gave me pause there because spend a lot of time uh, visiting friends and traveling to the United States. So many of us do. And so when you say that out loud, it it does have a little bit of a different say, And I don't say that lightly. Of course you don't. And there's a hope this morning in a theory that perhaps these missile attacks, that where they landed and what they did was sort of an off-ramp for Iran to say, look, we retaliated, we we fired something to show us. We flexed our muscle. Yeah. We showed you what we're capable of. Yeah. Without poking the bear. start this hour, Loren McNabb, with the plane crash that killed 176 people. Yeah, and the news that 63 Canadians were on board that plane. Officials say it crashed just after takeoff. It's believed to have been bound for Kiev in Ukraine. No survivors found on the ground. And of course, there's all sorts of speculation of what just happened here. The crash happened just hours after Iran launched those missile attacks at American Canadians and allied troops in Iraq. But we know officials were quick to say immediately afterwards that the crash was more likely the result of mechanical failure. Global's Redmond Shannon has been monitoring the latest coming out of Iran and joins us now. Good morning, Redmond. Good morning, guys. Let's talk about the cause that they've quickly pointed to. Why was that the immediate culprit in, in terms of their response, the mechanical failure? Yeah, well, what we what we know about the uh, in the situation surrounding the crash is that uh, it happened around just after nine Eastern time, so I guess eight your time last night, and that was early morning in Tehran. It uh, climbed normally out of the airport, heading towards Kiev, to, to, uh, pointing in the northeasterly direction, northwest rather. And then it reached about 8,000 feet in altitude, and suddenly all contact was lost and all data to the plane was lost. Now, that indicates that something catastrophic went wrong because, as we understand, the pilot did not uh, issue an emergency call. So something suddenly happened, be that mechanical or be that something else. And obviously, as you say, a lot of speculation, given what's happening in Iran um, right now and the situation in the Middle East, and we all cast our minds back to uh, the Malaysia Airlines flight over Ukraine a number of years ago, too. However, it's very, very early, and we don't know anything about what happened. What we do know is this was a 737-800 aircraft, which is uh, an aircraft that is uh, has a very good safety record. It's the predecessor of the 737 MAX, but uh, the 737-800 is the, the workhorse of the skies. It is one of the most popular aircraft in the world and has a very good safety record. And uh, right now, there has been talk, there was initial talk that there was an engine failure on board, although the um, officials have rolled back on that. And it's worth noting that any aircraft like this, if it loses one engine, can normally safely return back to an airport on one engine. So something obviously catastrophic happened. Uh, the plane, uh, no, no survivors on board that plane. And uh, as we know, so many Canadians who lost their lives. Redmond, uh, the social media is such a powerful tool, but it's a dangerous one as well. We've seen images, and, and folks, if you're on Twitter and, and other social media, may be seeing images that purport to be of the plane crash. Uh, have you seen that, that imagery, and has anybody validated it, its authenticity? The, all the uh, images I've seen, the only val- validated uh, images are, are those and, and video are those of the aftermath. And I think we need to, um, to be uh, careful when we, we talk about this immediately after so many of these incidents. And it was the same with the rockets fired from uh, Iran into Iraq last night. The, the Internet was flooded with fake videos. So we need to be very careful about what we say and what we believe when we when we look at videos online and any listeners yeah if they're taking a look should uh 
should check in with uh, news organizations that have verified this before uh, sharing those because uh, there may be of previous crashes. So I think, yeah, as always, need to be very careful when you go online and look at these images. On that note, we're also reading this morning on different news reports and CNN was just talking about it moments ago about the black box, which is, of course, a crucial piece of any plane crash that helps identify some of the problems that may have occurred. And there's reports that Iranian officials might not hand that black box over to America for its look or for its purview. Do you have any further news on that? Or is it too early to say when it comes to these kinds of situations, Redmond? Well, I think we're in uh, somewhat uncharted territory here because of the situation between Iran and the United States. Obviously, this plane was built in the United States by Boeing. Um, Iran, uh, Iranian authorities now have, uh, according to Iranian television, have recovered both black boxes, the flight data recorder and the, the cockpit voice recorder. And it is reported that they seem to be in good enough shape in order to be able to retrieve the data from them. Whether or not the uh, um, FAA from the States can get hold of that or whether or not Iran decides to hand it over to other authorities. Um, Well, that uh, remains to be seen. I can't imagine that um, uh, some independent organization um, and uh, airworthiness authority won't get to see this. Um, Perhaps that is something that will be decided a little bit down the line. Canadians, obviously, uh, right at the top of our concern list, 63 Canadians reported to have been killed. Uh, When do we expect to to hear and receive some of the the names of of those who have uh, perished in this disaster, Redmond? Well, Global Affairs Canada hasn't given any official statement yet. Um, we, we know, although the, uh, in, in the last few moments, um, the uh, Foreign Affairs Minister, Francois-Philippe Champagne, has tweeted uh, about the uh, tragic news, saying his hearts, uh, our, our hearts go to the loved ones of the victims including the many Canadians, but we don't have any other uh, official information yet. What we do know, as you said, 63 of these people are Canadians. Um, Iran says that uh, 147 of the people on board were Iranians, so that would lead us to believe that many of the Canadians on board were dual citizens, perhaps, of Iran and Canada. Um, A lot of stuff obviously pops up on social media again about potentially people who are feared to have been on board, but nothing official has been confirmed as yet because obviously this is still very early. Global's Redmond Shannon joining us live on 680 CJOB. Thank you for this, Redmond. Much appreciated, sir. Thanks, guys. Have a good day. Bye. And I just want to read this one uh, chunk of the article at globalnews.ca on this. AP journalists who reached the crash site saw a wide field of debris scattered across farmland The dead laying among shattered pieces of the aircraft, their possessions, a child's cartoon-covered electric toothbrush, a stuffed animal, luggage and electronics stretched everywhere. You can read more at globalnews.ca. The HSC Hope to Life Radiothon is coming up on January 24th, but I, thinking it's still 2019, found the listing for last year's event, and I put that on Instagram, and then I realized, no, it's not the 25th, it's happening on the 24th. And before we get that started, Greg, just have to mention a traffic note here. Eastbound Stradbrook, headed towards St. Mary's, is at a standstill, cause to be determined. So Friday, January 24th. Yeah, and so it's not the 15th annual, it's the 16th annual HSC Foundation Hope to Life Radiothon, presented by our friends at Merrick Holmes. It is an opportunity for the community to rally around the exceptional work being done at Health Sciences Centre in Winnipeg. It is also an opportunity to share stories from patients, caregivers, and researchers who are working every day to make our community healthier now and into the future. It is, in essence, a celebration of Manitoba's flagship healthcare facility. Jonathan Lyon is president and CEO of the HSC Foundation. He's here with Perry Merrick, vice president of architecture with Merrick Homes. Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning. Good morning. How's it going? Uh, it's going very well, and uh, Happy New Year to you both, since we have not seen you so far in 20. 20. Uh, this is really a celebration, as I mentioned, John, of letting people know what's going on at HSC. Because as we mentioned just before we bring you on here, there are all sorts of stories in the news about the state of healthcare in our province. This is a chance to say, hey, these are the good things that are going on and you can help make it even better. Well said, my friend. There certainly is, you know, uh, I understand why the media coverage or news coverage is what it is in terms of some of the issues that are afflicting healthcare across our great province. 
But every day, we're fortunate at the foundation to work with the uh, doctors, nurses, and allied health professionals to and, and patients with our donors to understand the good things that are happening at HSC. And we've had a, uh, a very active ni- 2019, 1919, hey? Yeah, everyone's uh, doing 20, it. <laughs> it's, it's contagious, <laughs> like this flu bug. Um, and uh, with some great announcements, uh, and we're going to be able to highlight a lot of the work that's done, a lot of the patient stories, and the impact that happens from the great care given at HSC every year. And we're looking forward to doing that again for a 16th time. I think it's important for people to hear those stories because what happens in this climate of concern with the healthcare system, all the good things that happen, I think get lost sometimes. And I, and, and I would argue the good far outweighs the bad. And so what kind of stories do you want to see shared, Perry, in terms of the, the hope that, that Winnipeggers hear that good? Uh, well, we've had an entirely positive experience in our relationship with HSC in different capacities as well. We've worked with them uh, in, in different charitable programs, but this one in particular we found to be uh, a lot of fun um, and very effective for the hospital for uh, for me personally, we my my wife was treated there uh, a few years ago for for leukemia. My late wife, um, and she had exemplary uh, care. She was with uh, she was in uh, their care for about a year and a half, um, and so we have an, a, a very personal relationship at my company with um, HSC. But beyond that, we've also worked with we've built homes for people that were treated there. We've built homes for people that performed surgery there. Um, we've we've had all kinds of um, uh, you know, meetings with people that have had uh, an unbelievable experience at the HSC, and we're very, very proud to be uh, to to be in a, a professional uh, relationship with them. Yeah, and yeah, I see that uh, you've contributed seventy three thousand dollars, Merrick Holmes, to the HSC Foundation to advance patient care. So that is wonderful. And Jonathan, when you are able to to partner up with someone like Merrick Holmes, uh, that sort of creates a amazing foundation before you've even opened the phone lines for the Radiothon. Yeah, there's no question about it. We uh, were very uh, fortunate and and feel blessed to have the relationship we do with uh, Perry and his family and uh, Merrick Holmes have been great supporters. Obviously, there's uh, personal reasons involved and then it's, it's carried on in other fashion and it really forms the basis to really kickstart an event like Radiothon as an example every year. And uh, so we're appreciative of their financial support and their moral support and their support. We work with them on lottery and all sorts of good things. And the extension through the community is something that we value and cherish. For those that don't know what the foundation does and the amount of money that it's raised over the years, where does that money go? Because there is still that interpretation, that belief that government does everything required to provide health care in our province. But there are donors that give $5 a year. There are donors that have given $5 million and put their name on different uh, institutions within the hospital and everywhere in between over the years to, to make good health care better, better health care best. You got it. And at the end of the day, you know, uh, doesn't matter what political stripe is in power, government can't do it all. We have a uh, perfect storm coming of an aging population and uh, people are living longer. And then you're seeing things like superbugs and all those sorts of things. So people need good health care. Government can't provide all the resources. Our foundation helps take next health care through donations like the Merricks and others help, helps deliver health care to the next level. So we help uh, support research every year to the tune of three to $400,000, depending on the year. And we also support things like clinical projects. And when we look at them, we look at it through the lens of, you know, I'm at the end of the day, I'm just a patient, right? I'm, I'm a fundraiser, but I'm a patient when I've been in the hospital. And no one wants to be in the hospital, but you want to get diagnosed quickly, treated quickly, so you can return home your loved ones. And we look at projects that are innovative, that help move the dial forward on healthcare. And because of that, Manitobans have been responding in record numbers to uh, support our projects. People like the Merricks who have stepped up and continue to step up, and that's really important because we all need HSC. I wanted to ask about that personal connection to HSC, Perry, because in in the in the reality sense, it didn't end the way you wanted it to for your no, for your wife. Yeah, that's she right. Passed <clears throat> away with blood cancer. Yeah, she had leukemia. She passed away in 2016. Actually, Greg's wife uh, Jackie and I and Marcy all went to the same high school together. So. So then you have this experience and yet you look back on that as a good one within the hospital system, despite that outcome, which says so much. Yeah, it was, we got to see behind the curtain. We got to see behind the curtain a little bit uh, with the charitable relationship that we had partnership. Uh, But when Marcy got sick, um, I really got to see the amount of work and time um, and care that goes into each and every patient. And it's absolutely staggering the amount of um, 
fundraising that's required, the amount of man hours that are required in order to ensure that people are getting proper care. And and it's a you know it's a it's one of the leading organizations in the country, which makes it one of the leading hospitals on the planet. But it would be easy to walk away from the hospital yeah. and look at it in a negative way. And, it, and you've done be. something totally different. No, we, that was, uh, you know, sometimes the magic isn't there. <clears throat> and it's a, it's a peculiar alchemy uh, medicine. Sometimes uh, everything works out perfectly. And that's the goal, obviously. And I know that. And, and uh, I, I, you know, it was difficult to accept, but I have accepted that. Uh, and I want to ensure that... You know, if 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 doing this, if, if Maricombe's helping with this, can help just you know one or two more families uh, not have to endure what uh, my daughter Sasha and I endured, that's that's well worth my time. It's the 16th annual HSC Foundation Hope to Life Radiothon presented by Merrick Holmes. It's happening Friday, January 24th in the William Avenue Mall at the Health Sciences Centre, 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. on 680 CJOB, as well as 11 a.m. to 6 p.m. on Power 97 and Peggy at 99.1. The fundraising goal this year is $175,000, and we know, thanks to your generosity, that we will be able to make it. Hopetolife.ca is the website, or you can take this number down, 204-515-5612. That's 204-515-5612. Jonathan Lyon is the president and CEO of the HSC Foundation. Perry Merrick is Vice President of Architecture with Merrick Holmes. Gentlemen, thank you very much for this. Thank you. Thank you. We start this half hour in the emergency room. Well, we've been sharing with our listeners, you, uh, over the past few weeks, about how Winnipeg's hospitals are stretched really thin. And the WRHA said yesterday, they basically called it a trifecta of seasonal illnesses causing the problem. So perhaps when one illness peaks like the flu, another will take its place. In December, listen to these numbers. The ERs in Winnipeg saw 120 more patients through their doors per day than they did in December of 2018. So it's a huge influx of patients. But adding to the problem is something we were actually telling you about yesterday here on The Start. That's a shortage of nursing staff. At St. Boniface Hospital, we since learned the vacancy rate is 18%. It's 15% at HSC. Monica Warren is the chief nursing officer for HSC and says it's actually been higher before. Those vacancy numbers have been higher, but it's far from ideal. We've had higher percentages in the past. We're certainly moving in the right direction in terms of reducing that vacancy. Um, So I don't have the total number of positions that are vacant, but we are typically aiming for between 8 and 10 percent. So we've got a bit of ways to go. Um, And so, therefore, we've really reached out to the university and to Red River and other nursing colleges to really keep our doors wide open for nursing students because we know they are our future workforce. In Winnipeg, there's that added challenge we've been talking about for well over a year, and that's safety in some ERs like HSCs. Yesterday, the Health Sciences Centre said it was working to change that by adding more security. But is staffing when it comes to nurses just a Winnipeg problem? Brendan Bernard is an economist with the Indeed Hiring Lab and joins us now. Good morning, Brendan. Thanks for having me. What do the numbers tell us? If we look across Canada, are are nursing vacancies up everywhere? Uh, the nursing vacancies have posted really strong growth in recent years. One of the stories of the Canadian labor market uh, over the past few years has been a rise in job vacancies, but that's especially happened in fields like nursing. And it really looks like the supply of nursing is increasingly lagging strong demand. On Indeed, we see that nursing job postings are having a especially tough time attracting job seeker interest. And this is especially the case in smaller provinces like Manitoba. Do we know why? Well, uh, I, I think one of the one of the one of the main things going on is just strong overall demand for healthcare services in Canada. We've got an aging population, and healthcare is one field where new technology and automation make it uh, aren't exactly ready to go to uh, automate certain jobs and uh, cut back on labor demand. So we've got a really strong demand for healthcare spending. Meanwhile, at the same time, uh, nursing is a tough profession and attracting new people to the field can be difficult. 
Statistics Canada reported last year that the vacancies in nursing went from 77 or grew by 77 percent over the last four years. So there were 77 percent more vacancies. That's a huge rise over four years, Brendan. And we've been talking, you know, in Manitoba in the past. One of the issues is that people chose to go south of the border or go elsewhere. So we're still training those nurses, but they were choosing to leave. Do we know if that's happening in terms of what's coming out of the schools? Is there still enough coming out of schools, but they they're spread thinly across the country? Or even continent? So, so Canadians moving to the U.S. for nursing is definitely a phenomenon. I don't know how uh, l- large that issue looms in the overall challenge, but it's just one of the factors uh, that's contributing to a tight nursing labor market uh, in Canada. Another factor going on is that usually when demand for a given profession or sector is really strong and outstripping supply, that wages in the sector should respond to attract new job seekers. However, that hasn't happened in the nursing field. Yeah, nursing, nursing is a well-paying profession, but wage growth in the field has actually lagged the rest of Canada, uh, with the rest of the economy in recent years. And so that, that's potentially another factor uh, holding back supply of the workforce uh, in the face of really strong demand. Obviously, they face a different challenge in terms of who sets the market and who decides who's going to make what and what salaries and wages are going to be because in, well, just about all cases in our country, that's a government making that decision. Exactly. And so uh, it's, it's a real trade-off for provincial governments because they want to boost the supply of well-trained nurses and that requires paying nurses a competitive salary. At the same time, the fiscal outlooks for provincial governments looking into the 2020s and beyond are pretty bleak. And that's in part because of rising projections for healthcare spending. And so it's a tough trade-off that provincial governments are trying to manage. Are stresses within the healthcare system contributing to this at all? We talk about the idea that, you know, a few decades ago, it was a job you could go into where you enjoyed it, but also guaranteed to have a job. It sounds like the guarantee is still there. But when you talk about pay issues and in the climate of, you know, changing healthcare systems, are you hearing if that's a contributing factor? Well, when we look at uh, nursing job postings on Indeed, what we see is that hiring challenges aren't just uh, aren't even across the sector. There's some positions that especially have a tough time attracting candidates. And disturbingly, uh, a lot of these positions are in emergency rooms, ICUs, NICUs. And so these sort of high stress acute care positions uh, are the ones that uh, especially have a tough time attracting job seeker interest. And so it it does raise some concerns about how this challenge is going to persist in the Canadian health system going forward. Brendan Bernard is an economist with Indeed Hiring Lab, joining us live on 680 CJOB. Brendan, thank you very much for this. Thanks for having me. Did you get Brendan on, Greg? Because... It's the same name as your son. Well, and I was wondering if uh, Brendan's uh, name, Brendan Bernard, was a palindrome, but he's got an extra R in that last name. So uh, his last name, and he spells Brendan O-N versus A-N. So I was out to lunch on that one, just like we're not really halfway through January, (laughs) as much as I'd like it to be so. I I, I admired the optimism on that one anyway. I knew where you were going with that. 813 on 680 CJOB. If you want to hear that, by the way, uh, that happened at around 6.43. If you go to the audio vault at cjob.com, where Loren kind of took Greg to task for she something. She poo-pooed my notion <laughs> that we're almost halfway through so January. So actually inaccurate. Well, well, on Monday is when we're expecting. Here's the rationale real quick. A week from Monday. now we're ha- No, a week tomorrow we're halfway through the month. <laughs> Eight more days from now, we're going to have a crazy forecasted high of minus 26. We haven't seen anything like that this winter. That'll be the 12th. You're the guy in a race that, you know, is supposed to go a kilometer and you get to 400 meters and you're like, I think I've completed the task. All right now. (laughs) Mackling McGarry and McNabb. And the other M, Max, is in Lotto Max. If you're hoping to be $70 million richer, well, unless you bought your ticket in Ontario, unfortunately not. It went to one ticket in Brampton, I believe it was, that you said, Greg. But there is one ticket in Manitoba that had six of seven numbers and the bonus that's worth $197,000. So make sure you check your ticket before you toss it. You might have at least a couple extra hundred grand in your pocket. Not too shabby. Hal Anderson joins us for the weekly Wednesday visit. Hey, Hal. It's not my ticket. 
I am here. <laughs> you checked already? With MacLean McGeary and McNabb. Were you in Brampton recently? No, I was not, unfortunately. All did right. you know that a listener told me I was complaining yesterday because I did not get tickets on Friday? I forgot. I got home and I forgot. A listener uh, sent me an email, Hal at CGOB.com, and said, did you realize you can get your tickets online now? I did not know that. Oh, but I appara- didn't know that yeah, either. But apparently yeah. you can buy your own ticket, which is maybe a little too convenient. But mm-hmm. um, hey, it's all about selling tickets, I guess. Um, okay, here's uh, the first one. I've got a few things for you guys here today. I'm going to be talking about this on my show. Apparently, this is a thing. Help me out. Please tell me it's not a thing. But a quarter of couples, according to a new study, a quarter of couples are now living apart. One so quarter? They can, a quarter. So they can stay independent. And Gwyneth Paltrow has now moved in with her new husband about a year after they got married. Um, she says, our sex life is over. And as one of her friends told her, she says, that's my dream. Don't ever move in. She goes on to say, I certainly think it helps not living together. It uh, helps in preserving the mystery and preserving the idea uh, idea the other person has their own life. It, it, with kids? That's the argument? Couples. Like a couple, I could potentially see that making sense. You'd not see all the how many times someone's in the bathroom or the gross goop on the sink or whatever, right? But when you got kids, I can only imagine, I mean, it'd be very hard to have who's who's doing the bulk of the parenting. Yeah, I, probably not as many people with kids. But even like, say you're married, you, you have a husband, Loren, yeah. maybe you have no kids. Would you even consider living not living with that person? No. Yeah. No. But a quarter of people, couples. Who would I blame for the messes? Now, are these aren't necessarily now these aren't necessarily married not couples. Not necessarily, but I'm, I'll bet you that well, if it's a quarter of couples, yes, uh, there have to be, be some a, married a good people chunk in there. Of married and apparently, people. older people, seniors are doing it. Um, I could see that uh, to keep their sense of autonomy. It says, but yet still being in a relationship. And there's all sorts of financial issues there as well that you've got to be careful of. But in an era where divorced. People are living under the same roof. Right. That's the other side <laughs> That's of it. That's the other side, yeah. right? It's interesting. I do see value in it, though. I think it adds to, you know, the whole absence makes the heart grow fonder kind of thing. Because right. if you're in someone's face all the time, that can just kind of kill the relationship's momentum. And then you start to resent yeah. that person for the things that, the very things that you once loved them for. Mm. And you just get annoyed with things. So I, I see some value in that. And I think, isn't it Tim Burton and Helena Bonham Carter who live in, they, they live in separate yep. houses that are connected by a tunnel? Mm. So that's kind of. I'll meet you halfway. I'll meet you halfway up the tunnel tonight, honey. <laughs> then you start to get mad. I came farther in the tunnel than you did. <laughs> but listen, I'm I'm a big believer in whatever floats your boat, right? Like, hey, sure. if it works for you, who am I to judge? But I was surprised, uh, as you sounded surprised, uh, Greg, when I said I that was. a quarter of couples now living apart so they can stay independent. Yeah. And Apparently, that, it's a thing. And that's a, a growing need for people, right? To, to hold on to their independence. Well, so, and let's face it, too. Sometimes that's what attracts you to another person, depending on what stage you are in your yep, life. Sure. You're attracted to someone. Oh, you're so independent. You're self-sufficient. Mm-hmm. Why would you want to take that away from that? I could see that. Not really in a married situation. Yeah. And, of course, if you're very wealthy and you're an actor and, and you've got uh, like some Gwyneth options. Like yeah. Yeah, right. that's a different story altogether. You stay at this house. I'll stay at this one. We'll prob- meet at the third one. They're yeah. probably <laughs> separate by continents right. most of the time. Yeah. So, but I could see this being mm. healthy, Maybe. Maybe a thing. I was pregnant with my firstborn. I was living in Toronto, and my husband was in Brandon. And so I lived with my brothers, and they helped me through the pregnancy up right up until I was nine months, and then I came home and had the baby, and then, and then we officially were living together. And then when I got pregnant the second time, my husband phones up my brothers. He's like, can you take her back <laughs> yeah, for like no the next kidding. eight months? Was she like this all the time? Like, well, how many pickles <laughs> and chip runs can one go on before they're like, yeah. done for the day, right? So there's like, sometimes, mm. sometimes it, I suppose it can work. I say that jokingly. Yeah, I still yeah. was happier being yeah. with him, but... But there is an argument for some mm. of that more annoying stuff. Yeah. Anyhow, I'll talk more about that on my show this afternoon. If, if you're in that situation, I'd love to hear from you. Hal at CJOB.com. We just got a text message from one of our loyal listeners. says, uh, my wife lives at home. I live in a truck. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, <laughs> sure. Truck, truck drivers, drivers right? right? Absolutely. And uh, another one here. Uh, apparently, dessert stomach is real. We've all heard that, right? We're like, oh, I'm stuffed, but I got room for dessert. Well, scientists say that here's the deal. It's not that you're full, you're just, you've had enough of that. Okay. So when you're eating dinner and you go, oh, I'm stuffed, but it seems like you always have room for dessert. Scientists say it's real. 
you're just tired of eating that one thing or whatever your dinner was, and it, it tells your mind we're full, but in reality, you're not, and that's why you've always got room for dessert, apparently. That sounds oh. like a cop-out. Yeah, that's not the case for me. I no, know, I, I know Christmas night, uh, I had a pretty healthy serving of dinner, and uh-huh. then my sister had made this delicious dessert, and I had some of that, and I was in pain for four hours because yeah. I overate. Yeah. And I knew it. As soon as I had the dessert, I thought, mm-hmm. I'm going to pay for this, and boy, did I pay for it. But your brain wanted to have that dessert. Yes. Wanted it, yeah. Right. Yeah, I I, I, yeah. I knew I knew it was going to be awful in terms of like the effects that it would have, but I I had to have it, and I, I suffered greatly for it. So. Well, I think we see dessert as sort of a treat, right? It's like, oh, this is special. So yeah, you want to you want to take part. I got to get a little bit of that. Even when Joey eats that entire turkey on mm, Friends, yes. he still has some of the dessert. Right, Give me a sliver. Yeah, a bigger just piece. A sliver. What are you running out? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Inevitably, there is room for dessert for most of yeah. us. I and if I got time for one more quick. Yeah. yeah, one more quick one. I, this is for uh, Greg Mackling because, of course, he's a big football guy, and uh, as I am. Have you heard some of the new rules in the XFL? The XFL is coming back. <laughs> oh, have God, you heard some of the go. new rules? The overtime rule is interesting, but uh, what are some of the other ones? There will be no. I'll just give you a couple. There will be no extra points kicked. You can't kick for extra points. Got to go for two. Instead, teams will choose from three options. <laughs> okay. You can, uh, after a touchdown, you can attempt to play from the two-yard line for one point. You can try from the five-yard line for two points, or you can go from the 10-yard line for three points. I like that. I kind of do, too. Yeah, that has tons of strategy. Yes, I like that a lot. A little more more exciting. Um, Two forward passes on a play. Come on. Oh, that's cool. That's not football anymore. Teams, well, that's that's tradition. Bob Irving would hate this. I think you're right. That's like ultimate Frisbee or something like that. Teams will be allowed to attempt two forward passes on a single play as long as the ball doesn't cross the line of scrimmage before the second pass, a change designed to encourage innovative trick plays. Okay, as long as the forward passes both come from behind the line of scrimmage yeah. I might be able to I might be able to get my okay. head around that you mentioned the other one shoot out over time that's another one uh one foot in is good for a catch okay that's like the that's CFL. All right. yeah and uh game clocks there will be a running game clock except for the final two minutes and a 25 second play clock okay yeah you know what? That's one of the biggest problems that people have with sports on television or in person yeah. is that it takes too long to play. Right. And so that might speed up the game and make yeah. it a little bit more viewer friendly. And it's it's the XFL. It's got to be different. It has to. Sure. You have to do something in order for it to take off. If it was just the same as the NFL, well, then it can't win because it's never going to be as good as the NFL. No question about it. Right. Still Vince McMahon involved in this? I, I think so. I'm not sure. I can't remember the story now. I'm not sure, but XFL is uh, coming back. Yep, there you go, some new rules. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Thank Hal. you, Hal. And uh, yeah, it is owned by Vince McMahon's Alpha Entertainment, headquartered in Stamford, hmm. Connecticut. There you go. 845 on 680 CJOB. Lenore texting us at 204-780-6868. Couples living apart, isn't that basically called dating? <laughs> <laughs> or divorce. And uh, Brenda says, <laughs> men live longer when living with a woman Women live longer when they are single. Oh, is that scientifically? I'm Googling that right now. (laughs) What are you saying? We're a drain on all things emotional? Charles Adler used to read this thing. uh, I think it was called Why Do Do Men Die First? And and the the, the punchline at the end was because they choose to. Sixty-three Canadians were among the 176 people killed in that plane crash in Iran overnight. Officials say it went down just minutes after taking off from the capital's main airport. It was destined for Ukraine. The crash, which killed everyone on board, happened just hours after Iran launched those ballistic missile attacks on two Iraqi bases where Allied troops are stationed. Although both Iranian and Ukrainian officials say... They suspect mechanical failure and nothing more sinister. Matthew Fisher is a longtime foreign correspondent and a fellow at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute and joins us now. Good morning, Matthew. Hi, Lauren. Let's start with that plane crash. Speculation is rampant concerning the cause. Should we read anything into the fact that we're now also hearing reports that Iran has said they were not going to give that black box back to Boeing and therefore there might be reason behind this speculation that there's something more sinister on happening? I don't know. It could be that Iran just doesn't want to cooperate with uh, any Western 
bodies at this time. Uh, This is a wonderful day for conspiracy theorists on a number of fronts, and this is certainly one of them. Uh, There could be a perfectly innocent explanation for how this aircraft went down. That's possible. Uh, I've flown on those airplanes with that airline a number of times. Uh, I found them always to be pretty good uh, in terms of maintenance and everything else. Uh, There's the question if it was uh, somebody trying to stop an arms shipment, for example, to the Middle East. A lot of that stuff gets funneled through Iran to Syria and Lebanon. This airplane was going north. Uh, not south, but perhaps there was somebody on that airplane uh, who was being infiltrated into Europe for um, uh, uh, sinister means. We have no idea. The Russians, of course, have their own problems with Ukraine, and uh, they are tight with the Syrians, and they tend to do things to stir the pot up. They could be involved themselves. The Iranians might do it to divert attention uh, from what's going on elsewhere. Uh, One would think that if it was a missile attack on this aircraft, that the Americans and the Israelis, who will without a doubt be over Iranian airspace and stealth aircraft these days, they would not make that kind of uh, mistake. There's a huge difference between a Boeing 737 and the Ukrainians' usual means for moving arms to the Middle East and Africa, which is an Aleutian 76 transport aircraft. Lots of theories why there are so many Canadians on that flight when they won't normally give Canadians, myself included, even a visa to Iran. Uh, I am guessing we will discover that almost all of them are Ukrainian, uh, or rather uh, um, Iranians who live in Canada, uh, who have taken Canadian citizenship but uh, started their lives in Iran. Uh, That's why probably the Canadian number is so high, because all the other foreign nationals on that plane, quite low. Ukrainian Airlines offers very cheap fares through Kiev to Canada for countries uh, in Asia and in the Middle East. And that's why I think there were so many people with Canadian passports on that flight. Matthew, no shortage of conspiracy theories about downed aircraft over the decades. In the last 30 or 40 years, I can think of a half a dozen just off the top of my head. So these things aren't necessarily always black and white. They are definitely not black and white. The Americans shot down an Iranian civilian aircraft, one of their cruisers, in the Persian Gulf did that about 20 years ago. The Russians, of course, were involved, implicated by the Dutch and the Malaysians in the shootdown of a Malaysian uh, passenger aircraft, a Boeing 777 over eastern Ukraine four years or so ago. Um, The Russians were also implicated in the shootdown of a Korean uh, 747 about 20 or 25 years ago um, off the Kamchatka Peninsula and the Pacific Ocean. Uh, These things do happen, and uh, often we don't later learn what transpired. The only evidence we have right now, and it's somebody on the ground in Iran saying that the aircraft went down with one engine on fire. Well, that could be an engine fire, which is a a huge event for a twin-engine aircraft, but it could also be because if you're using missiles, they seek heat, and the heat source on uh, any aircraft is the engine. And so uh, a missile would hit the engine. I know when I was in Baghdad, uh, an American C-17 was hit by a missile as it approached the airport, and it only hit the engine. That plane was able to land. But uh, So missiles tend to go for the engines. We've been talking about this because it follows the speculation is there because it follows those uh, missile strikes on allied troops in Iraq. And there's been some suggestion this morning that because that no one was hurt in those Matthews, this Matthew, this might signal a de-escalation, that that was intentional by Iran. And we're waiting to hear how U.S. President Donald Trump responds. But what's your analysis on where we are and whether tensions are rising or falling in that region? I'd say they're definitely rising. And I would also say that you give the Iranians, I don't mean you, but people who are speculating about this, far too much credit to think on an air base that they could hit and kill Iraqis and hit uh, civilian targets or no target whatsoever and miss uh, the Americans that are there. Uh, I think it's pure luck that they didn't hit the Americans. I've been to Al-Assad Air Base a number of times. I've been to the base at Erbil. 
There are huge sprawling facilities with American aircraft parked all over the place. And so they are a capital target. Uh, Donald Trump will regard this, whether Americans died or not, as an attack on American interests. And we can expect, as I guess we've all been expecting, tit-for-tat retaliation and escalation. And so whether it's tonight or two nights from now, when the United States has picked out targets and has its assets in position, something else will happen, and one can expect that the Iranians will uh, respond uh, to that. It's uh, When they're shouting death to America in the streets of, uh, of Tehran, uh, when the Shia minority in uh, Iraq is really stirred up and there could be problems between them and the Sunnis, let alone with the Americans, uh, with Lebanon and the capability of Hezbollah to rain rockets down on Israel, as have done before. The Saudi refineries can be hit. The Iranians have hit that before. All those oil ships that go through the Straits of Hormuz, you can close the strait by hitting some of those ships. There are a, an awful lot of things that can take place. And, of course, that's not even looking at all the things America can do. But we do know they've sent a huge number of their military resources to the Middle East in the last few days, including about 8,000 crack troops. Speaking of those resources, Canadians on the ground there, and some of them were relocated yesterday as a result of the rising tensions and those airstrikes. What happens to the future of the Canada's soldiers and the mission in Iraq for them? Do they stay? Do they go? Is it in flux? Well, it's in flux, and the Canadians and uh, NATO say this is a temporary measure. It's a suspension. But I have a hunch this that mission is done. Uh, it's going to take an awful lot and a long time to... Uh, recreate the kind of stability that Western governments will want to put in relatively unarmed uh, soldiers to do training. And also uh, the emotions are so high in Iraq that as a matter of principle, I don't think they're going to want Western troops in. This achieves a great goal of Iran. Iran wanted uh, the NATO troops all out of Iraq, and I think uh, they're going to uh, achieve that. Uh, We will see. Uh, And I understand why Canada now says it's a temporary measure. I get all of that. But I I think it's going to be a permanent measure. And when they say it's a partial withdrawal of Canadians, I am betting after that emergency meeting that the prime minister had last night in Ottawa with all his top security people, that the orders to the military are get as many Canadians out. Partial withdrawal, I'm guessing 80 or 90 percent of our troops will be uh, out in the next uh, day or two. Matthew Fisher, longtime foreign correspondent and a fellow at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute, joining us live on CJOB. Matthew, thank you for this. Well, thank you very much for having me. Hey, thanks for listening to the Start Podcast. We are available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Subscribe now and never miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate the show, tell us what you think. And hey, even tell a friend about the podcast. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Greg is at GMACWPG. That's G-M-A-C-K-W-P-G. I am at Brett McGarry, B-R-E-T-T-M-E-G-A-R-R-Y. And Loren on Twitter is at McNab on Global and on Instagram at McNab on C-J-O-B. Talk soon.